0: From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. And I'm really glad that you could tune in here for this live episode on Friday, the last day of March. But I do want to give a content warning. We're going to be talking about something a little bit heavy today, but it's well worth hearing. If you're up for it, we're going to be talking today with Dr. Adam Stern from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine about the role of veterinary forensics in criminal justice. So I hope you can stay tuned because Animal Airwaves Live is coming up after this news from NPR. Wuftfm. This is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm so glad that you could tune in today here on this Friday, the last day of March 2023, and I'm really happy to welcome back to the program today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Adam Stern. Now we're going to be talking about something today that I would advise you to use caution because we're going to be talking today about the role of the veterinary forensic pathologist, and that is what Dr. Stern is. And so what he does is he goes around and he collects evidence that can be used in trial. Uh, And some of this is gonna be pretty tough to listen to, but it's such an important thing, and I, I think that many of you will find it quite informative and enlightening. So let me welcome you back to the program, Dr. Stern. I'm really glad to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me, it's great to be back.
0: Now, I describe you as a veterinary forensic pathologist, and many people may never have heard of that specific job, right? And, and I think that there's a pretty good reason for that, because you are, a, you are basically uh, an army of one in, in this sort of field.
1: Yeah, so here at the University of Florida, I, I am an army of one. I actually am training a fellow right now um, to be an army of two, which has been really great. Um, but yeah, being the medical examiner for the animal um, is a really important job, and you know we we got to do it. And and here is where we may want to draw an analogy to something
0: that people might recognize. So, you all listening probably know that when there is a death of a human being, that unless it occurs in the presence of a physician or, like, at a hospital or something like that, a medical examiner is probably going to be looking and doing something like an autopsy. Now, you are the kind of veterinary equivalent of that. Is that a decent enough analogy?
1: Yeah, that's a decent analogy, yeah, absolutely.
0: And this is so critically important because, as everybody knows, that, you know, when a human being dies and it's not in the presence of a doctor or, there could be questions about what the cause of death was. Now, maybe if we're talking about uh, an, an elderly person or a person who's got chronic medical conditions, then there can be some maybe safe assumptions to make. But sometimes there are maybe suspicious circumstances. And it is likely the case that many of the calls that you get, Dr. Stern, involve circumstances that do not seem so benign.
1: Yeah, so a lot of the calls we get, there's some sort of question behind that death. It's suspicious, um, whether it's law enforcement calling us or a pet owner who, you know, um, is worried that something a little more nefarious happened to their pet. Um, that's the calls that we get. Um, so it's quite different than, you know, the, the person or the animal who has long standing disease and succumbs to that disease. These are the more uh, questionable, maybe something is just not right. So it it
0: has probably happened in your career that you have gone to a call and maybe have done some sort of necropsy and determined that indeed there was nothing really amiss here. I'm hoping that that is the case. Uh, oh,
1: oh yeah, absolutely. We we do um we do necropsies, we call them autopsies because it's a little more uh palatable of mm-hmm. a term um but we do autopsies and sometimes yes absolutely it's a, a natural disease process and there is there is no foul play ah but then there's other cases where there 100% is uh and and
0: i think that any of any of the listeners and myself included here who hear about this uh, it is upsetting significantly upsetting because well we we all acknowledge that Animals are essentially helpless creatures, at least compared to human beings. And so the thought of someone doing something harmful to an animal is just odious to even contemplate. But here's why it's important that somebody does your work, Dr. Stern, and that is that people who abuse or mistreat animals deserve everything that they've got coming to them. That's my opinion, and I'll just give that here on the radio right now but somebody needs to be there to gather the evidence that can then be presented in a court of law. And so your role is really crucial. Let's start out with some basics here. First of all, how did you train to become a veterinary forensic pathologist?
1: So that's a two part answer. So the first part was I learned just about veterinary pathology in general, learning how to do the autopsy of the animal. Um, I actually went to the Oklahoma State University to do my training there. Um, And so that really gave me that foundation Got became board certified, so kind of taking this examination to show that I have done the training, I have the knowledge. Um, So that was my foundation. And then unfortunately for for me and a few other uh, pathologists out there, we didn't have um, a really good training system. Uh, There were no programs around. That, that would train us. So we had to uh, kind of look at the, the human side and look at the practices that they have done, go to trainings for um, medical examiners, essentially, and and then apply that to the animal and sort of pave the way to where we are now, where we can go ahead and train other pathologists um, how to do these autopsies and how to work up these cases. That's a fascinating. Okay, so I, this is, I don't know if this is an,
0: question that's even possible to answer, but how much of what you learned in the field of human forensic medicine is really translatable to animals? Are these cases similar? I mean, are the kind of stuff that you would have seen medical examiners for human beings doing, does that really cover the scope of what might exist in
1: the world of veterinary forensic pathology? So some things yes and some things no. So the principles and practices, how to collect the evidence, for example, it's going to be the same thing. Um, so all of those foundation things are, are similar. Um, human fatalities, gunshot injuries, stab wounds. So directly applicable to the animal. We see animals who have been shot, who have been stabbed um, with knives or swords or anything else. So, again, those things are, are similar then we do have a a bunch of differences. Um, And I recently spoke at a conference back in January, and there were some medical examiners there, and I was uh, talking about uh, some of the cases that I've seen, uh, some of the poisoning type of cases and things of that nature. And after that, that talk, they came up to me and they said, this is so interesting. You have these poisons that we have in humans as well, but we don't see them. It's an animal thing and and then vice versa. So um, there are things that, you know, are around, but more animals get it, more humans get it. So uh, some of those will be differences, but the the foundations are exactly the same.
0: Yeah. And so the the process of your doing this and the fact that you're currently the only one must mean that when you were getting this training, Were you, like, the only veterinarian who had, like, taken this training at that time?
1: So there is about 10 of us scattered um, within the United States and uh, Canada um, who are really the the leading force behind this within our professional college. It's the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. And we are putting on the trainings at the annual conference. We're doing the workshops. Um, And so down here in Florida, um, it's really you know being the only one in the state who has this expertise as a board certified pathologist it's it's really 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 unique and kind of lucky for florida um that i'm here because we see cases from all the state we see cases from all over the country we've had cases shipped to us from uh, pennsylvania wisconsin texas so um it kind of comes here
0: <laughs> yeah but i mean only 10 of you for this country of like some 300 plus million people uh, i think that uh, more people have thrown a perfect game
1: or walked on the moon than than the numbers that we're talking about here absolutely and that's why we're we're trying to do more training but with so few of us it's going to take some time but now that we've really established veterinary forensic pathology as a specialty a subspecialty within the specialty of pathology um We've now made a lot of progress.
0: And I definitely want us to talk about how it's a specialty in in the program that you're undertaking to get more people involved. But let's just for the sake of our listeners and setting up this conversation, talk about what a day is like for you in your professional life. So you see all these cases, but what's the first step? Somebody calls you on the phone.
1: Yeah, so that's the first step. Somebody calls us, whether it's law enforcement or, or someone else. And we'll just go with law enforcement animal control. Um, they give us a call and say, hey, we, we have we have a case. Um, and we just start to talk about the details of it. Sometimes um, there's been rare times where I'll actually go out to the search warrant um, when they're about to go onto the property for the first time. Uh, so we see it right there. Um, other times they just bring us the body just like a medical examiner would receive the body at their morgue. Um, so that's really the first step, and we kind of work up, you know, what, what are, what's the circumstances here, and, and then determine our approach to each case because each case is different. We do the same autopsy, but sometimes we'll do other testing along the way uh, to say um, the animal was potentially shot. Uh, we will definitely do radiographs or do a CT scan of that animal before we start, because that's really the best way to identify a projectile or a bullet um, in that animal, because that's really, really important evidence that we need to go and collect. So what would be an example of a case that
0: law enforcement might want you to accompany them in the execution of a search warrant? Would this be some sort of case in which they suspect there are a number of animals in the house, like maybe something like an animal hoarding kind of case?
1: Yeah, so it could be animal hoarding, um, animal fighting, uh, whether it's roosters or dogs, uh, puppy mills, um, and even just the one-off animal. Um, there might be a reason why you would you would want the pathologist there. We see the scene. We get an understanding of what was going on there. Um, and even help and, and, and look at things at the scene that might— um, kind of give us a clue as to what might have actually happened to this animal.
0: Now, in a case like that, where you're called to a scene in which you think that there's been some animal fighting or there's been some animal hoarding or something like that, are, local, are officials from local animal control on the scene or nearby? Because it may come to pass that you arrive... And you discover that there's going to be dozens of animals, maybe, and there's going to need to be some triage, probably, of animals that are are all right and maybe some animals that are not all right at all.
1: Yeah, so usually um, in a case like that, a larger case where there could be dozens or, or 100, 200-plus animals, uh, it's going to be a team. Um, typically, I'm dealing with the deceased animals, um, and then there will be veterinarians who are dealing with the live ones. And so... You're, you might have three veterinarians at a, a larger scene, like you said, triaging. You know, there's going to be animals that are alive but need care right now, like right this minute, and then there'll be others that are okay. They'll get removed as well um, as as appropriate, and then they'll be deceased, and so you would hit them in waves, um, taking the most important, sort of the critical ones first, and kind of go down the line.
0: I don't want to jump ahead here, and this may be a question, too, that is legal in nature, but... To your knowledge, does the law treat an injured but living animal differently than a deceased animal when it comes to the prosecution of any individuals who may be involved?
1: Yeah, so we have misdemeanor and, and felony um, animal cruelty. There's, there's a bunch of different caveats in there. Um, but sometimes the, the death of the animal is important. Um, but even if the animal is alive and has experienced multiple and prolonged pain and suffering, that, that, that's a felony as well. So um, it it does distinguish both of them in the statutes, but each of them can be a misdemeanor and each of them can be a felony.
0: And, and, and here this again is another legal question, but let's say it's just a series of misdemeanors. Can you add up enough misdemeanors to
1: create a felony? No, misdemeanor is a misdemeanor. Yeah, but there's there's um, penalties for each of those charges, and so they can add up. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes you'll have a couple of misdemeanors. There's one or two felonies. Sometimes you you just have the single felony. Um, sometimes you have three. So it just depends what you did. And
0: so you're you're called up by either law enforcement or animal control.
1: For how big of an area are we talking about? For is this for all of Florida or a, a region? So we. Most of our cases come from Florida. We do get from outside the state as well. Um, but I've traveled you know, throughout the state to help. A lot of times they just come to us. Yeah. So uh, it's a little more convenient for me. I um, suppose. <laughs> you, bring, you bring it here uh, yeah. rather than I go there. Um, but yeah, most of the time they, they bring it to us, and then we, we work on them.
0: How many cases do you see in a week or
1: a month or a year? Can Can you even count them? I can count them. Yeah. Uh, we have our case numbers. Um, this year has been a lot busier than, than the previous year. Um, a lot of it has to do with us uh, starting a, a task force here in Central Florida for animal cruelty. So that's that's been a big help um, because more and more people learn about you. More and more people um, realize that this is a resource and this is a very powerful tool. Uh, so it's been a lot busier um, just in general this year.
0: Yeah. So... Uh, in cases in which you are traveling to go there, what would, what would be the difference between a case that an, a deceased animal might come to you versus you
1: go there? So if we are helping maybe do some excavations of some animals that have been buried, um, that's one reason why. Um, you know, sometimes it's really just to, to see the entire scene. Uh, I did a dog fighting. Oh, sorry, not dog fighting. It was a, a, a rooster fighting. Uh, case uh, a year or two ago went out there um, really to see the animals the ones that were alive the ones that were deceased Um, and then we did some uh, single home uh, search warrants where um, those cases um, pretty brutal uh, types of cases but you really need to see what's actually going on yeah
0: yeah so you um, might arrive on the scene and you need to do the kind of evidence gathering that any sort of uh, law enforcement forensic team would would need to do correct or is that up to the law enforcement
1: so typically when when i go to a scene um i'm going to be more playing an advisory role i'm going to let whatever crime scene technician is there they're going to be collecting it and doing their protocols but I might be pointing out some things like hey that's actually very very important in this case let's be sure to get it because to the average person uh, say with dog fighting there's a lot of things that um, the people who train these dogs have that to you and I would just be a normal object Uh, so so having someone with that different skill set to say that's really important and you were going to walk right over it because you didn't know
0: yeah and it seems to me then that prosecutors would probably really or the state attorney's office or whoever would really appreciate your having pointed that out so that evidence can be gathered because that is going to be crucial to probably prosecuting a crime
1: oh absolutely and just recently i testified in a in an animal fighting case again it was roosters um and on the stand um i was shown a box that had different things inside it and was able to explain to the jury what each of those things were and why that was important. It was We were specifically looking at some of the drugs um, that could have been uh, given to the animals. And so explaining to them, you know, to you and I, that's a, uh, a supplement that we can give to an animal. But why is that important here?
0: Why was it important there?
1: Um, so that for, the, for these roosters, that was um, these uh, steroids, uh, like testosterone and some Uh, different supplements Um, they're given to these animals during their preparation time before fight kind of every fighter has their recipe of what makes a good fighting bird and so I was able to explain that to the to the jury Uh, it did did it result in a conviction oh that one yes that one Uh, he was found guilty oh boy
0: All right. Well, this is where we're going to take our first break. I want to tell listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT-FM. And my guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Adam Stern. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm happy to have here on the program today, Dr. Adam Stern from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. We're talking about the role of the veterinary forensic pathologist in criminal justice. And Dr. Stern, uh, we were talking about in the last segment sort of how you function in this job and, and how it is that you are called to a scene, or maybe an animal is brought to you. But the primary function of what is taking place here in your role is to gather the evidence that the state will use to prosecute someone who has been accused of essentially abusing animals. And so... Everyone, everyone, I think, can understand that this is really, really important work, but tough work. I mean, you have to be a certain kind of person to be able to, one, stomach this. Um, let me ask you, what, what kind of guides you here? Is it just the desire to do right by these animals that have been abused?
1: Yeah, so it's definitely a desire to do right for the animals, um, and really on both sides, to both. I mean, my goal is to to help the courts. Let them make their decisions. I'm not deciding who's guilty and who's not. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also uh, driven to, you know, tell what happened. And if it's not animal cruelty, I will say, I will tell you that's what that's what it is. I mean, it's a natural disease, like we talked about in the very beginning. Yeah. So you're exonerating. You're potentially exonerating people just as much as you're providing information. That will be used to prosecute them. So we're really driving both sides. Yeah. We're an unbiased party um, telling a story uh, and that, using yeah. science and evidence.
0: Absolutely. So that must make you feel good when you have ascertained that this was not foul play. Would, in that circumstance, any criminal case against the defendant related to animals just fall apart
1: immediately? Well, it depends. It depends what was going on. So maybe there are still some other charges, maybe some other things were going on. Um, You know, with animal crimes, uh, there's also this association with other types of interpersonal violence. So maybe there was interpersonal violence going on at that location, and there happened to be a deceased animal. So the question is, why is that animal deceased? And so we answered that. So maybe it's completely unrelated. Um, so they might still be charged with the other things that they did.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so you work hand in hand with law enforcement. What was the training like in order to do that? Did you have any sort of background in in law enforcement at all before you kind of took on this role?
1: No, I didn't have any uh, background in law enforcement. That was that's all learning, um, doing, going to conferences. And, Getting the training, you know, in real time. Yeah. Uh, so you know, every year I go to a variety of different conferences, and I'm always each year going to a conference that's specific for uh, medical legal death investigations, more of the human side, because the principles, like we said, are are the same. So, yeah, every year. And how how. Do you feel like your
0: relationship is with law enforcement in, uh, in practice? Do you, f- I mean, and what I'm, I'm asking sort of like, are they glad that you're there? I mean, because you're doing something that they're not really qualified to do, even if there are people on their team who are very qualified at processing crime scenes and very capable of investigating human death.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a team. Um, and, you know, they really appreciate having another team member to help them. Uh, just like when we have the human body, they're processing the scene, but they're not examining the person. It's going to the medical examiner, the forensic pathologist. With the animal, same thing. It's going to the veterinary forensic pathologist. Yeah. The
0: cases that you work on, and, and as we've discussed earlier, there are there are plenty of them. Are there times in which the evidence that you have presented leads to a plea rather than a trial?
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of of pleas, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, obviously, the, the accused and their attorney are going to have, you know, sort of their game plan just as much as the state will have as theirs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, definitely I had a case um, little over a year ago where three, three dogs were dead. And um, really couldn't figure out why just by talking with the, the, with the owner of that case. Um, and they've been buried for a couple of weeks, those dogs. So like a lot of time going on, uh, gave me the case. And then I said, here's what happened. And then um, those animals ended up being poisoned um, by the owner and uh dying from that poison and eventually he pled guilty to his crime and he was sentenced to 5 years in prison for that wow now with a case like that did the authorities
0: know when they were called out to a scene that these dogs were even there or was was he was this defendant was he, well now convict uh was he suspected of something else or or was this animal abuse the whole purpose of the case to begin with
1: his neighbor called and ah. said the dogs disappeared haven't seen the dogs in a while Amazing. and was just calling kind of out of concern I first of all kudos to the law enforcement wherever
0: this was for taking this seriously and showing up because I haven't seen my neighbor's dog is probably not a the top of local law enforcement's priority list, Uh, and yet uh, this neighbor must have been persuasive enough. And then, oh man, I'd love to hear how this, I want to read about this case because, so yes, okay, so they go out and they probably say, hey buddy, where's your dogs?
1: And he said, I don't have any dogs. Get out of town. He said, I don't have any dogs. But you go into the backyard and you see big chains and collars and dog bowls. Uh, okay. Well, so technically, he did not have dogs at that moment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So.
0: <laughs> so okay. Well, so that was one lie he didn't tell. Uh, but then they must have suspected that these dogs were still on the property somewhere, and then and then you get called out. Now this guy was probably thinking, "Oh, I got away with this scot free because who in the world is going to come out and investigate it? And here comes Dr. Adam Stern, and he shows up, and now you have the ability to do an exam on these dogs to prove that there was poison. And that is remarkable because, you know, obviously they must do this in human medicine all the time, though I suspect that poisoning is not the, the, you know, sort of uh, choice of murder weapon in the 21st century as it might have been in days of old uh what kind of tools do you have to identify poisoning
1: well the nice thing about this this poison was and my aha moment was actually when i was looking at tissues under the microscope Um, so we finished our autopsy didn't have a cause of death Um, we processed some tissues preparing them to look at microscope slides and you look at the tissues and then the aha moment comes and you're like there we go and it was a a finding that we have that can only be caused by one poison, and we had it on our slide.
0: I can totally imagine. Uh, I mean, in this case, you you may not have had to do this, but you know, s- some prosecutor asking you now, Doctor Stern, tell me, you know, what could cause this particular tissue damage, and you would say it can only be caused by this poison, and. You know, and and then that's where in the TV show version of this, you know, there's an audible gasp from the the courtroom. Uh, Now, in this case, uh, it led to a conviction and he wasn't uh, this defendant was not uh, accused or charged with any other
1: crimes, just animal abuse. Yeah, just three felony charges for animal abuse. Wow.
0: And so this is a perfect example of a case in which you genuinely uh, brought, you know, created justice for these animals you and the prosecutors and and whatever who who made this all happen um and that's got to give you a good feeling even if you know having to do this investigation in the first place gives you a very bad feeling
1: oh yeah no i mean it's I, i i am happy every time i can solve a case regardless of what i find um and to have the courts being able to use that and make their decisions it's it's a great feeling because you know you told that story for that animal. you are that that animal's advocate at this point, because really no one no one else can uh, do that in this specific case because I am the only pathologist who worked on that case, um so I have intimate knowledge of that animal and tell its story <laughs> yeah,
0: and, and really such a sad case too, because there are so many ways to not have dogs anymore if you don't want dogs. <laughs> that would result in probably some family being really happy to have a new dog. Uh now that case initially you were saying seemed to be a mystery until you checked the tissue and discovered something that might have been missed. What are some other instances and or some other things that might seem invisible to
1: the layperson at first, but would be apparent to you. So, I mean, this is a little bit more, uh, descriptive, but, um, sometimes you have animals that, um, are, are burned. Okay. And they're, they're, you know, in a, in a fire and, you know, you look at that and you just, you just see this burnt being, yeah. and that's really hard to stomach. And what we do is we, we look at them and we do the autopsy on them as well. Um, and you know we have a couple of questions that we are trying to answer. One was, were they alive or not? Um, when that was going on? Because that's really important. Um, and so we had a case that came in that they were, were asking that, really worried that the animal was alive when that happened. Um, and we were able to definitively determine that the animal was not alive when that happened. We figured out why um, it was deceased. And um, kind of in some ways makes everybody feel a little better because they know that that animal didn't suffer from, from a fire.
0: But was there foul play? Or, or I mean, uh, it seems very suspicious, right? Your first right. thought is, oh, was this covering up a crime?
1: Right, and that, and that was the next question, was it covering up a crime? And in, in reality, in that case, um, there was still a crime there. there was an, it wasn't an animal cruelty. turned out the animal was actually um, humanely euthanized. Um, So it went to a veterinarian, potentially was euthanized there. And then somebody um, decided to um, bring their animal to the park and, and burn it. Um, So, so the crime, there is actually a crime there. This was in another state, but there's a crime for doing that to an animal um, in a public place, um, but not, not cruelty.
0: Weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh my gosh. So, I mean, just the variety of things that you see is probably as—I mean, each case has got to be unique in some in some way, even if some, you know, like animal fighting cases might have some broad similarities. And as you are going about doing these investigations, are you essentially by yourself?
1: No, I, um, I have a team. Um, can't do everything by yourself. So I have, like I said earlier, I have a, a pathology fellow. Um, and she's training to to do these types of cases. Um, we have uh, uh, an entomologist who we work with. Uh, we have some DNA analysts that we work with, and then we have a couple well, technical staff as well. So um, we really have this this team. And so sometimes I t- I have a case and I have to give part of it to the entomologist to help us explain you know. why an entomologist might get involved. So time of death or estimating the time of death might be very important to say when the event happened Um, because when you're looking at suspects you might be using time to put them at a location. So if we can say this animal um, died at at minimum three days ago, um, we're not going to be looking at 24 hours ago. What was that potential suspect doing? We're going to look at three days, four days ago, and so law enforcement will work that way. We have uh, DNA analysts who uh, maybe we have a, a potential weapon that has some red material on it. We can analyze that, see if that's blood from the animal victim that we have. And now we start matching a weapon or a location to to the animal that I have.
0: Yeah. And do these, uh, these colleagues of yours, have they uh, undergone any of the training that you have? Or is that not really necessary? Because they're focusing on something pretty specific that you can kind of guide them to um, to research or, or
1: look at? So our entomologist, he's a board-certified forensic entomologist, and so he's, he's got a, a pretty unique skill set, so he does this for crimes oh, he, against humans and yes. crimes against animals. Um, and then DNA analysts, I mean, they have their degrees for uh, maybe population genetics, and then they are just using their science to um, answer a legal question instead. And so they kind of went in that direction. With their profession,
0: tell me a little bit about what it's like when you are a witness in court. If it if it gets that far, I imagine some cases just don't even get that far to to where you are called as a as a witness.
1: Yeah, so definitely it's a smaller percentage uh, because a lot of a lot of times there's plea deals that happen. Somebody pleads guilty. Um, some go to trial, and then some charges are dropped for a variety of reasons. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they're, they're not the suspect or it was a natural disease. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a, definitely a very interesting uh, time when you go to court because you uh, typically get sequestered, which means you sit by yourself. You don't talk to anybody about the case. Uh, you get called into court. You get sworn in. And then then the questions start happening, and you're just answering them, whether it's a jury trial or a bench trial where it's just a judge um, so that they can you know, listen. They don't ask questions of you. You're just answering questions that the attorney to ask,
0: Right. And I can imagine how it goes when the state is presenting evidence and asking you questions. But what kind of questions might a defense attorney ask you to try to, you
1: know, exonerate his client or her client? Yeah. So you get asked all sorts of questions. Obviously, each case is different. Um, sometimes you i've had cases where they they don't have any questions for me because um you know what i said that that's what it is and and they're looking at a different part of the case um but then sometimes they'll they'll ask you you know you know why did you not do this or did you do dna because everybody wants dna at a trial but then there's some cases where you don't need dna yeah let's talk about that what why what sort of cases would
0: benefit from having DNA evidence presented at a trial? And what cases would it be just irrelevant?
1: So uh, DNA at a trial, say you have a, a, a sword, right? We've we've had cases of this where you want to say that sword was the weapon that was used. And so you might do the DNA comparison of the sword to the animal uh, because there's biological material on that on that sword. That might be a case where pretty useful stuff um, to get that DNA. Um DNA is not relevant at all in, say, a starvation case where somebody doesn't feed their animal. Um, But sometimes they bring that up and, like, why didn't you do do DNA analysis? Well, A, nobody asked me to do it, and B, to compare it to what? You know, Um, now I wouldn't be allowed to say that part uh, because they're just asking you, "Did you do DNA comparisons?" And Uh, then the then the state will come back and ask you, "Well, why didn't you do it?" Yeah. Okay. Um, So so (laughs) so then, then that's when you get to say because it
0: wouldn't. It's meaningless in this instance. Yeah. Um, So uh, you you're called to these uh, to present evidence in these places. Now, this might be in Florida, but it might be somewhere else, and. How do you kind of fit all of these into your schedule? Because who knows exactly when they're going to come up?
1: My schedule is unpredictable, <laughs> to say the least. Um, a lot of times you do get advanced warnings, so you can kind of look at your schedule six months from now and say, yeah, I'm free then, and you block it off, or that's a really bad week, and, you know, they'll, they work with you.
0: Yeah. Now, sometimes, though, you are – You're maybe if you're out presenting evidence or something, then who knows how long that might take. But then there, you could be called about some case, and you're now far from there. Yeah. So I can see why there is an urgent need for more of you. And that's something I want to talk about in the next segment of the program. But for right now, I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT-FM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Adam Stern. And we'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on wuft My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Adam Stern, and we're talking today about the role of the veterinary forensic pathologist. And Dr. Stern, one of the things that you've been talking about is how few of you there are in this profession and how there really could stand to be more people who I think understand what it is that you do. What, what initiatives are underway to kind of increase the knowledge and awareness of this, especially in people who, you know, could, could potentially be involved, right? Like it could be, you know, that could be people in different fields, but that might be in some way, you know, that you might interact with in some meaningful way.
1: Yeah. So you really nailed it that there are so many fields that can be involved. And I I sort of look at it sort of as a wheel. You have the hub and then you have all the spokes that come off of it. Um, And so you may have a case that's just, it's just all you need is the the autopsy. And then you have all these spokes because you need an entomologist or a toxicologist, whatever it is. Um, So getting people involved is it's just showing them how that their science is is really important and that there's questions that you can answer uh for us and so that's how we get a lot of these collaborations and it's not just the scientist like the scientist is a big part uh but the other parts of it it's it's law enforcement the whole criminal investigation the prosecutor the whole you know going to court and 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 arguing in court about these cases um the uh, foster care of the animals that um, are victims that are alive, and um, because they they need to be around to potentially have follow-up for tracking their improvement. So a starvation case where, you know, the, the animal essentially is a walking skeleton, and with some food, some basic nutrition and care, um, we can't just say that, they're are walking skeleton and give them some food and put them away and off they go uh, we need to track them and we need to show how they get back to their normal weight um, and show that 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 survivor now is an ideal condition again and so we need cooperation with the foster so there's so many people that we really need to work with yeah and so you've created a task force yep so we created a task force um it's out of it's uh done by the state's attorney in the uh, Marion County, uh, Lake County, Citrus, Hernando, and Sumter, and so it's a five-county task force, and we we meet, uh, we uh, discuss cases, um, help each other out, give you know ideas of, of how to approach your your case, um, and then we also educate at the same time. So during that uh, those meetings, we'll we'll put on presentations of maybe best practices or review a case or two and show here's here's what we did here's what was good and maybe there was a a lesson learned or you know something to think about um that you normally wouldn't think about for that case so it's been really productive and how is it being received um our first meeting had 30 people and then we'll have meetings with 40 and i think we had one meeting that almost hit like 50 um so we've we've had some really good meetings we we meet um, we move around so we yeah. don't always go to the same place. So we can kind of, um, make sure that the county that we were furthest away from last time, we're going to be a little closer this time so that they can get there.
0: Yeah. A- and so when folks come in there, you know, you, they get to see all of what they're getting to see I mean and they're going back and they're probably sharing with some of their colleagues, the importance of the work, uh, and that seems to me like it can help raise awareness too for what it is that you're what what it is that you're doing. Um, you know, getting I don't know, getting buy-in, so to speak, uh, from these different agencies and so forth. How crucial is that gonna be to the success of veterinary forensic pathologists and and just for you know being able to do justice for these animals. I mean, increasing it seems to me, awareness of what it is that you do only stands to help because I'll confess here that this was not even a a profession that I knew existed. I just hadn't contemplated it. Now, maybe that was just because my brain was trying to block out the idea of animals getting abused and the need to have uh, criminal cases against them in which somebody presents expert testimony, Uh, but people knowing about what you do has got to be helping you.
1: Oh, yeah. the It's sort of one of those things where once one agency, you know, they're like, we figured it out, and this is how we did it. And then that word of mouth, um, that's how a lot of it happens. Yeah, sure, you can advertise. Um, but really it's the word of mouth to say, hey, there's, there's this group that can really help you. They helped us. So then they call, and they get help. Yeah. And so on and so forth. And you just build on that. And that's the same thing we're doing uh, two training upcoming one in april one in may that's just for law enforcement and prosecutors and i've already sold out both of those sessions so i'm going to have to do another one because we have people coming from all over the state we have a couple of international um, visitors who are going to come just for for these talks and workshops so
0: but fundamentally you are still just a group of what did you say, like ten people across the country. What is it going to take for there to be more of you? because with only ten of you, there surely is not enough to really prosecute every case that ought to be,
1: yeah, so that's entirely correct. And so we are we are working to um, train other pathologists uh, for one. And we are—we um, have a task force within our professional college that's sort of addressing this at the moment as well. Um, how do we train other board-certified pathologists? How do we give them this expertise? And we have—we have trainings that we do yearly, and that's going to start to help um, improve things. So this past year, we um, talked about um, certain kinds of crimes, and this year we're thinking about maybe uh, training them on evidence collection from from their cases. So. Little by little, we'll get there.
0: So where do you see this field, say, 10 years from now?
1: So this field 10 years from now, I think, is going to explode. Um, you know, I picture my group right now here at the University of Florida. Um, 10 years from now, I would envision that I have several other pathologists working with us, Um you know, maybe one, maybe two, maybe I would love three. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is the work out there to be done, but really just the go-to place. Like, you you have a case, and it's just automatic. Just like you go to your county medical examiner, uh, that's what I want.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I certainly hope that that is what the future is like. Well, my first hope is that nobody abuses animals, and therefore you become obsolete. But my second <laughs> wish, and given that that is not going to happen, is that you – have the resources to be able to do the work that you're doing and do justice for these animals so dr stern thank you so much for coming in and talking to me today i really appreciate it adam stern is a veterinary forensic pathologist at the university of florida i want to say thank you to all of you for listening to animal airwaves today and every week when you tune in and i want to say thank you to sarah carey and Amina buckley over there at the college of veterinary medicine I'm Dana Hill, and I hope you can join me next time for another edition of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye.